So yesterday was the anniversary of my father's passing. And it's been about, I think, seven years now. But the date still has obvious um, emotional and, and mental health ramifications. And the older I get and the more I sort of go down this path of self-healing, the, the more confusing it is. Because I'm looking into myself and considering all the faults and the flaws and all of the stuff that's happened to me and where that's led me to be. And I can't help but realize that my father, obviously, was just a fallible human like myself. And arguably, he had far less access to support and care and guidance and all of that sort of stuff that I do. So then I look at that and compare that to the anger and resentment that I feel towards him for his lack of competent parenting, his neglect, and to the danger that he exposed me to in his household, and all of the abuse that I faced, and all of that sort of stuff. I'm now sort of looking at this thing going, well, do I forgive you? Can I forgive you? Should I forgive you? And I'm sort of coming to the conclusion, well, well, well yes, I mean, like, he, everyone is just not just every that the, there's there's a level of sort of leeway I'm starting to discover for him because you know stuff happened to him in his past he 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 struggled himself with mental health concerns with addiction with all of the stuff that I've battled with and he just turned out to not be able to manage it now does this mean I want those things to have happened to me? Does this mean that I would have hoped that he would do a better job? Does this mean that I'm over it? Well, no. But what it does mean is that I'm starting to see the the person behind the man in the sense that when I was growing up, I initially had the view that, you know, your father, my father was this amazing man. You know, you look at your dad like he can do whatever he likes and like he's, you know, great. <laughs> And then you, over time, realize that the reality of that is that they're flawed. They're flawed individuals. And I think the natural progression of that is it's a very slow progress as you age and you start realizing that, okay, well, they're not completely perfect. They've got these issues. They've got these problems. And, you know, they're trying their best. But for me, that started to happen when I was like, say, six or seven I, I distinctly remember looking at him and comparing him to other parents and and seeing a just a shell of a human, someone that just couldn't quite, just he just didn't have his shit together. He just couldn't quite manage life for some reason. And there was a lot of built-up shame. And, and back then I didn't have the confidence to ask, nor did people really explain to me. It's like, hey, this is what, this is the reality of mental illness. This is the reality of drug use. This is the reality of addiction. This is the reality of trauma and what it does to people. And I didn't know to ask. And I also didn't know the impact that it would have upon me. And I remember just sort of internalizing all of this sort of stuff and all of this shame, um, distinctly remembering times where I would go to his house because my mum and dad split up. I would go I would go and spend the weekend or whatever with him and he would hide all of his drug paraphernalia. But because he was stoned off his face he did a very terrible job of it and I'm, I'm just i'm thinking well the better better answer would be to be like well, this is 
this is me, this is the reality, this is why I take these, and this is why it's, you know, not ideal, but this is where I'm at. An open and honest communication. Now, obviously, I'm putting my own brutal, open, vulnerable, honesty mind frame upon my father. And I guess one of the reasons why I am so open with the world, with with the people in my life, is because I've seen what silence does. I've seen what holding back and not explaining to people does. For me, what I've learned with my son is, is you know, there'll be days that I'm depressed. There'll be days that I'm, I can't get off the couch. So when that happens, I'll explain that to him. And now he's only three years old at the moment, but he understands. And I'll, I'll put it, try and put it in language that he gets, but I'll say to him, look, Zach, daddy's not feeling that great. He's a bit tired. He's feeling depressed. He's feeling sad. And that means that, you know, we have to have a chill day today. That means that if you, you know, I want to spend time with you, son, but I can't be the energetic dynamic, all of the stuff that we usually do. We have to play like this. And I sort of let him know what that means. Is this idealistic? Maybe. Am I going to fuck him up in my own way? Probably. But I can't help but try and put that in there. Uh, back onto the topic of my father's passing and this this reminiscence. I, 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 I really try and go, okay, what can I do to, to, to see my father as, as a person? Like, you know, and I've been practicing meditations and some of the meditations the the meta the loving kindness meditations get you to picture the person as a child you know it's very easy to 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 love a child and to feel compassion and care for the child because that child is innocent no matter what they grow up to do or not do the child themselves is full of potential and depending on their environment and their choices and all that sort of stuff they become the adult they become so considering the child that my father was that person I feel tremendously sorry for because of the stuff that I've discovered that he went through himself. I can I can relate. It's I'm I'm left in this balance between looking at the impact that he had upon my life with the the the, the forgiveness and the care and the concern and just the understanding of where he's come from. Does this mean I don't go through issues of anger or rage or like wish, like, why didn't he do this? Why? Of course. But I'm learning that if I want to improve, if I want to get anything done, I, I have to take those steps. I have to do the thing and I have to put it upon myself to heal. And part of that healing process is doing podcasts like this, is writing, is just meditating and decompressing and sort of stepping back and working on understanding the reasons why. There's this drive to go, okay, well, this happened. Why did it happen? And, you know, that's led me down the path of looking into psychology and sort of cycles of abuse and this, you know, cycles of neglect, cycles of mental illness. Because, you know, if you think about it, the way you learn to communicate, the way you learn to connect, the way you learn to interact with people is primarily from your parents. So if your parents presented or did certain things, you're most likely going to do those certain things. And for better or worse, that's what you go into, you know, your your adult relationships with. That's what you go into your parenting with. So for me, given the way that he was, I've learned that, well, I don't actually want to give all of that to my son. I don't want to be the father that he was to me. 
So that's made me go, okay, well, I don't want to be that. So initially I would sort of turn and go the opposite way. But now I'm going, okay, well, not every, not everything he did was wrong. What did he do was right. I'm going to hold on to that. And then I'm going to watch other parents, watch other fathers, friends of mine, what they do. And I'm going to read and I'm going to consider and I'm going to contemplate. And when I see my default reactions that I'm like, oh, I can just hear my father in me. I will take a step and go, okay, is this something I want my son to get? Is this something I want my son to take on board? And not just my son. Is this the type of relationship that I want to have with my partner or my friends or social groups or whatever like that? Is this the relationship that I want to give the models that I've been modeled from my family, from my parents and my extended family? Do I agree with it? Is it right? Is it going to lead down the path that I want to lead down? I'm just going to say that if you've if you've had a abusive or neglectful parent, you're probably feeling similar to me in the sense that you've. I know that I, I I sort of don't have a ground to stand on in the sense that initially I was like trying to just what don't I want to be I I I, I sort of had to transform myself to fit in and to survive, and then the the safer and the longer I go in my current environment where I'm, you know, happy and I'm healthy and I'm physically strong and I'm, you know, I'm the adult now, I'm safe. From that environment, how do I then go to making sure that I remain safe? How do I then go to making sure that I can be the best person I can be? It's a process of self-discovery. It's a process of trial and error. It's a process of learning. It's not easy, but it's one of those ongoing things. One of the things that helped me tremendously is writing therapy. I talk about this a lot because it just means a lot to me, but writing down the bad stuff of my past, getting it onto the page. Now, I choose to share it because I'm, I don't know, I don't know if it's blessed or just I have an ability to share this sort of stuff without it impacting me too much, and I know other people can't. So for, for if that's you, like keep it to yourself. But just get it out. You know, and this is what a, a competent therapist will do. You can talk and share. But I like writing because the page listens. It doesn't judge and you can throw it out afterwards. So with that in mind, I'm going to read you the next chapter of my book, Under the Influence, Reclaiming My Childhood. Now, like I said, this book was an act of writing therapy. So it contains a lot of the stuff that I just had to get out and express. And the process of it, it was very challenging to write and it sort of knocked me down a few pegs, but I healed stronger. And every time I go back through it, it hurts, but I'm recovering. It's a process of a journey of recovery. So like everything I do, I release everything I do for free online. Um, over time, I'll be sharing all of the chapters of this book, um, either on the podcast or on the blog. But if you like it and you want to support what I'm doing here, you can grab yourself a copy. It's out as a paperback, ebook, and audiobook. So with that in mind, I want to read you the next chapter, called fitting in. Attachment theory proposes that the relationship forms between a parent and a child can significantly influence the dynamics of that child's long-term interpersonal relationships. The infant's ability to develop trust in their caregivers will influence their relationships for the rest of their life. Attachment theory further suggests that how an infant is raised will actually change the internal narrative of the child, the way they look at, judge, and observe the world. This carries on to adulthood and will colour every interaction and event. How they view connection, love, and life are all skewed based on the narrator that lives within. So it follows that an infant grew up with parents who are emotionally available, perceptive, and responsive to an infant's needs. Then in adulthood, 
that person is more likely to be responsive, emotionally available, and perceptive to the needs of others. People with this kind of disposition and upbringing are securely attached. The homes of insecurely attached infants typically consist of unresponsive, rejecting, inconsistent, preoccupied parents that are unattuned to the needs of the infant. Physical, sexual, and drug abuse are also often present. What's not guaranteed, insecure infants often typically become insecure adults. They struggle to form healthy relationships with others and are often sceptical about the motives and actions of the people they meet. Trust is a rare commodity for these people. Clearly, I was not securely attached. Without getting into an expert assessment, it's hard to pin down exactly what kind of attachment I had to my father and how that impacted me. But given my dad's continuous afflictions with drugs, his disorganised personal life, and the constantly dangerous social situation of his home and his avoidant, distant demeanour, it's not a stretch to presume that I fit somewhere in the insecure attachment side of things. Throughout my entire life, I've always felt outside of the group, never quite fitting in with what the guys were doing, never quite understanding how to act in social situations. This isn't to say I was unpopular or didn't have friends. On the contrary, I've always found it easy to make friends. Rather, I find that often I have the feeling of being a fraud, of acting rather than doing, and that they'll one day discover my act and I'll be ousted. I'm sure that everyone puts on a show at some stage of their lives in order to fit in or learn the ropes of a new situation. When you meet a group of people or start a new hobby, you have to learn the group's norms, language, and mannerisms. You do your best to fit in, even though you don't fully understand exactly what is being done or why. Eventually, given enough time, you too will be part of the in-group. And it becomes seamless. You are no longer acting. You have now assimilated into the group. Perhaps your presence even shifts the group slightly into a new and exciting direction. The problem I face is that this process takes a long time and only rarely occurs. No matter the length of time I spend with people, I always have it in the back of my mind that they'll see me for what I am. It's hard to maintain an act and eventually I'll come undone. I find it hard to just let go and be myself around people. I suppose this leads to a much larger question of what it means to be yourself. Looking at others, I often see what I often see what seems to be people with a very strong understanding of who they are and what they stand for. Strong in their convictions, they seem to have it worked out. Their personality, dress sense, behaviour and aspirations all seem to be consistent. They are they know who they are. They are who they are and they know it. I don't have that. I feel like I'm constantly bouncing between different versions of me. I've never truly felt at home with my mind or my body. Despite wearing things that I think look good on me, I don't yet have a defined style. Trying to fit in with a certain look just makes me feel like I'm going to a dress-up party. I'll act differently around separate groups of people. Sometimes I'm strong and confident, and other times I'm weak and feeble. Often I'm humorous in the life of the party, but just as much I'm stoic or depressed in the corner. I feel like a defective chameleon, changing to fit in and often failing. The real problem is that I have no way of knowing if this is normal. I only see people... I only see what... I only see what they want to show me in that instant. Perhaps it's, perhaps they too have the same internal dialogue, questioning and believing themselves to be acting and fraudulent. I, once, I was once told that it's not so hard to be myself in this regard because I'm comparing my whole life, internal dialogue and mood to what people perceive of them in the instant. My internal world will affect both how I judge them and how I'm judging myself. This thought was comforting until I realised it meant that I can't objectively judge. I can't even objectively judge people against myself. So here I am, left wondering about my place in society, questioning how I got here and why I feel the way I do. I'm not sure if it's normal to ruminate this much, but I have a feeling that most people can just let go of these thoughts a lot easier than I can. It's hard to have these kind of discussions with people. Most can't empathise with the severity of the thoughts that impact my mental state. When I open up, I often get the variation of the following. Why don't you just focus on the important things? You think too much. Why don't you just move on? 
You're a great person. You just need to see that. Whilst this is well-intentioned and logical, these answers don't really help. It seems like people just go about their lives blessed with an innate level of self-confidence that simply enables them to act without any rumination. Or perhaps they don't consider their place in society or family, never wondering about their role in life. Who I am is a question that seems highly important for me to answer, yet most people never, answer, never ask the question. Or perhaps they're more proficient at answering it. Either way, I would love for this to be a non-issue in my life. Even if people do have this discussion with me, I'm left questioning their motives and what they're saying. Are they just acting to fit in with the conversation? What do they want? Are they placating me out of concern? Do they actually understand? I'm not even sure if they understand. In fact, I don't know if I understand myself, which makes me wonder if I don't have a base to un to if I don't have a base of myself to understand from. How can I possibly attempt to understand everyone else? It feels like I'm trying to tread water whilst also holding someone above my head. Eventually, I'll just end up drowning. One of the key facets of, of attachment theory is trust. Trust between people is vital for the development of any relationship. Depending on the upbringing of a child, they may struggle to develop trusting relationships into adulthood. From personal experience, I can definitely vouch for that. Until recently, my natural inclination was one of skepticism, doubt, and rejection. I'm not sure why this is the case. Objectively, I have every reason to trust these people. They never have wronged me and are always there when needed. Still, my initial reaction is one of mistrust and it takes a lot to overcome these feelings. I'm still surprised when long-time friends offer me help or assistance or even simply pay for a coffee. I feel like I'm merely a product of my past. Never really trust... I could never really trust my dad for anything. He was completely unreliable, disheveled, and often stoned out of his mind. I can't remember much of my childhood or how he treated me as an infant. But judging on the way drug-affected people raise their children, it wouldn't be hard to imagine that I'd faced a similar fate. If there's a choice between drugs and children, sadly, the drugs often win. This lack of attention, love, and support significantly and irre irreparably shattered my confidence in people, as well as worked to undermine my sense of self. Self-discovery is a slow and arduous process, filled with question marks and no, no signposts to guide the way. However, it's not all bad. Coming from such a low place over the years, I've been forced to develop coping mechanisms, strategies, and activities to try and help myself. I've tried numerous activities, tweaking and refining them as I go. Of these, the most beneficial include a regular and open and honest discussions with a variety of people, undertaking a dedicated martial arts practice, as well as avidly reading. Growing up, I always guarded my true emotions and feelings, so much so that I felt like I was lost, even to myself. As such, conversations were often of a very shallow and impersonal nature. It was so extreme that I often complained of physical pressure or even pain when I attempted to talk. I would, free I would feel physically bound, like there was a, a vice around my neck that would tighten with each attempt at talking. However, as time went on, I would find that being open and honest with people close to me allowed some of that pleasure pressure to dissipate. Initially, that often meant repeatedly explaining to the person that I simply couldn't answer their questions because of an internal block. Over time, I found I was able to dig deeper into myself and let it out. This process has a profound impact upon me, and its benefits are twofold. Firstly, and most significantly, this sort of discussion-based introspection enables me to better understand myself, and thus function more optimally. I liken this process to driving a new car. The more you explore the features, the better you're able to drive it. Secondly, it enables others a deeper insight into my mental state and mind. They might not fully understand me or my situation, but they are at least moving a step closer. These deeper relationships are quite rewarding in their own right and the support and understanding gained by simply letting other people in cannot be understated. It is always an eternal battle to show weakness or ask for help, but provided it's with a trusted friend or family member, I'm always grateful for having, doing, having done so. 
I've also found that complete immersion into a hobby can be an excellent way of letting go of troubles and moving towards healing. My personal favourite is martial arts. I've tried a variety of styles over the years, but I'm particularly fond of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. It's quite technical, but also allows for hard sparring as well as competitions. The style is continually, continually evolving, so no matter how much you practice, you can never learn it all. In addition to the benefits of exercise like the serotonin release, fitness and overall physical health, martial arts is a community. I've developed strong bonds of friendship and deep connections with my training partners. More importantly, focusing on something external that involves a combination of physical and deep level problem solving, coupled with a never-ending progression, is a great way to quiet a busy mind. After a session, the world seems brighter. Colors are more vivid. Sounds are crisper. At this stage, I'm well beyond a level required for simple self-defense purposes. So training, as much as I do, has no practical value other than the benefits to my mental, physical, and social health. Finally, in my opinion, reading is the most valuable activity that anyone could undertake, primarily because it enables the reader to live multiple lives and empathise with the thought processes of the author. Put simply, you'll never live my life. You'll never see the world through my eyes or interpret events through the lens of my past. You don't have my skill set, attributes and knowledge. However, if you read my work as you are now, you'll get to live a bit of my life. The way I phrase things, the emphasis I use and the parts I omit all tell a story. In effect, by reading my work, we are sharing something. Not just what happened, but something deeper. I found that the more I read, the more I understand. Reading enables me to view the world through somebody else's eyes, problem solve with them, and handle moral ambiguities as they would. By observing how characters interact and measuring my internal responses against their actions, I'm able to learn more about myself and grow as a person. So that was the chapter called Fitting In from my book Under the Influence Reclaiming My Childhood. Now, a couple of caveats about that chapter in particular rereading it now i can see the growth <laughs> that i've made since writing that i wrote that maybe a year after my father's death so it's a decent amount of time ago now and since then i feel a much stronger sense of self i've learnt more who i am what i've like and i'm sort of standing up for myself more if i'm in a group situation if i if i don't like the group situation i won't put myself in it i will make better choices in terms of the activities and the ideas that I have. I have got a sense of style and dress and sort of a, what's the word, a, a sort of a system of, of, of living and interacting and, and ways that I do things that suit me best. I've established morning routines. I've established interests and pursuits and hobbies. So I've gone down the path of discovering myself. And in, in the process, my relationships well, some of my relationships have gotten a lot deeper. I've let go of other relationships because the person that was in those relationships isn't truly me. And it's okay to let go of relationships. It's okay to move on. It's okay to change. I've learned that because, you know, if you're hanging on to things based on habit and not on who you actually are, those relationships are built on false ground and will eventually fail anyway. So with all of this in mind, I, I always get a little bit rattled, like I say, going back over under the influence because it does hit so close to home. And I'm sort of dreading reading the next chapter a little bit. The next chapter is called Blackness or Darkness. And that's the chapter where I review and recount aspects of the, the, the trauma, like the, the, the bad trauma that I really faced. So the next podcast, I'll read that out and suck myself up for it. But I think it's important because... 
like I said, the more we share the reality of mental illness and past trauma and abuse and our inner worlds, the more we learn to accept that the thoughts we're having are okay. The more we learn that what we're going through is not normal in the sense of everyone deals with it, but normal for people who've gone through the past that we've gone through. And I'm discovering that when people interact with me based on under the influence, they're saying like, hey, you're thinking the way that I thought, or you've gone through the similar things that I've gone through. And then I'm like, okay, well, if that's the case, this is what's worked for me. I've found that talking therapy, meditation, exercise, all the stuff I harp on about here and in the pod, in the videos and blogs and all that sort of stuff I do, that's what's worked for me, what's worked for you. And so now we can both, you know, we both share resources. We both share ideas and concepts and benefits. We talk about, well, oh, hey, drinking is not that great for our mental states. It's, it's a depressant, you know. We've learned that, you know, how to deal with family reunions that are challenging. We've learned to deal with how to, to, to develop trust for people, right? There's a, there's, a, there's a process here and we've learned that it's okay to reach out and talk. So with that in mind, if this story has hit a nerve or it's you connect to it, I encourage you to check out the rest of the chapters. I'll put a link down below to this chapter in blog form so you can read it. And from there, you'll be able to read all of the other chapters and grab a copy if you'd like to support what I'm doing here. And speaking of support of what I'm doing here, the best, best, best thing you can do is rate and review. No matter where you're listening to this, if it's on YouTube, if it's on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever, just chuck chuck that like, click that review and just say what you think because it'll help spread the word. So yeah, cheers. Oh, and just, just a little other quick thing. I've started releasing five to 10 minute videos on my YouTube channel. My YouTube channel is called The Beard of Knowledge. So for the people listening, if you've only ever listened to what I'm doing here, you don't get to see I'm growing quite a nice little little beard here. I'm going to get it trimmed for the people on the video. Um, but I've called myself The Beard of Knowledge. If I'll be releasing a video every Monday to Friday. I'll put a link down below to The Beard of Knowledge videos so you can check those out. And just a side note, why, why call it the bit of knowledge? Basically, when I was teaching, some of the students started calling me that. So I thought it was a little bit of homage to my teaching past. So there'll be five to 10 minute videos, Monday to Friday, Monday and Friday on philosophy, mental health, politics, and self-improvement. So I'll sort of be digressing from the content here a little bit. I get more, a little bit more political or a little bit more social commentary, I suppose, would be a good little summary. So rate and review the podcast. Check out the Bit of Knowledge YouTube if that's if that sounds like something you'd like to do. Cheers. Thank you.